first an announcement up top. I'm going to be in Austin, Texas for the next week or two. If you're around and would like to meet up, please get in touch. So for this edition of China Talk, I'm first going to read a 2021 China Talk year in review I published last week on the newsletter and then run an interview I did with the browser earlier this year where I recommended some books and hobbies as well as talked about the time I played Madison and Mulligan in a peaky university performance of Hamilton. 2021 year in review and future plans for China Talk. Open source Chinese government research. Earlier this year, my favorite college professor passed away. Donald Kagan was an historian of ancient Greece and life-changing around a seminar table. His courses would cover around 30 years of history. Each week, he would give two students simple prompts for five-page papers that were circulated to the rest of the class and served as a basis for discussion. After spending the first 15 minutes querying the paper's authors, he would cold call the room, incorporating responses while guiding the discussion. He tried to limit his seminar size to 15, the Spartans' preferred number for common meals, though inevitably there would be 25 students crowded in the room. Part of the magic of studying ancient Greece was that, given the limited sources, a week's worth of reading on a narrow topic could allow you to ingest the breadth of relevant primary sources, as well as a handful of contemporary scholars arguing about what it all meant. As Kagan once put it, that's a very unusual situation in that it has the great advantage that the teacher is not in the position of an all-knowing master who can tell you everything you need to know. The student can find it out just as well as the teacher can. This fax lets the students be at a very high level of analysis, but not swamped by all the information they have that the other guy doesn't. Kagan's courses left me with two central lessons. First, the conviction that studying political history isn't just a game. People make decisions that have altered the course of history, and understanding the dynamics of those decisions can speak directly to contemporary issues. And secondly, if you aren't interrogating your sources and reading critically, you're wasting your time. Even Thucydides, the so-called father of history, had his own agenda and sought to frame events and people he cherished in the best possible light. The current debate on China certainly takes itself seriously, but it lacks deep, systematic engagement with Chinese government sources. Particularly as opportunities for on-the-ground, bottom-up, interview-based research dry up, what we're left with are speeches, propaganda papers, and government policy documents. That is not the worst thing in the world. There's far more in open source available about China, the CCP, and the Chinese government than there ever was about the USSR during the Cold War. And while you don't get the blessing of a limited source pool for a college seminar, these reams of text give newcomers to the field acres of fresh material to harvest. But the problem is, no one gets trained in how the PRC system functions and how to decipher Chinese government documents. Contemporary academia rewards regressions over deep qualitative readings of politics. Think tankers are rarely hide for their fluency in the language of Chinese bureaucracy. And intelligence analysts often aren't given the time and training to skill up. There are maybe two dozen academics and analysts outside of the intelligence community who have developed this skill set and actively engage in English in the public debate. Having had conversations with a number of them over the past few weeks, nearly all were more or less self-taught. I want to help create a cadre of a few hundred. What Chinese watchers with language skills need now is the training instead of modern tools. Think Genius.com or a CCP Safaria to do the sort of work the likes of Alice Miller, Jeremy Barmay, Ryan Manuel, Dan Tobit, Holly Space, and Ling Lee produced. If you're interested in joining this cadre, please fill out the form I put in the podcast description to help me get an understanding of where you're coming from. And if you're interested in supporting such, a, such an endeavor either financially, institutionally, or through teaching, please reach out to me at jorschneider at gmail.com. And now to the podcast review and future series. So I'm a few episodes away from my 200th episode, 
To put that in perspective, that is five 40-hour work weeks of content. I tried to capture the sort of Tao of China talk in an episode I did earlier this year. Understanding China is one of the most important things that's happening intellectually today. It's really, and it's a really fraught thing that a lot of people are doing irresponsibly. It's sad and upsetting watching analysis of the country be simplified, skewed, and flattened in a dangerous way. I don't have the answers or even too much of an agenda when it comes to U.S.-China relations, and I'm pretty ecumenical about who I invite on the show and think I'm doing something right, knowing that I have dedicated listeners that range from former Trump appointees to hard-left college kids. But the one message I want to convey in my interviews is that doing objective analysis is important and making sure you are starting from the facts and building up as opposed to starting with an ideological conclusion and backfilling from there is the right way to go about things. If there is a China talk worldview, it is that you can never understand China, but you can be on a path towards understanding China. And the fact that I can promote voices that I think are doing that in a responsible and thoughtful way and put them in front of an audience that they might not have otherwise heard is a real blessing and a responsibility that I take seriously. Some of my favorite episodes this year have been buddy episodes, where two guests have mutual respect and some pre-established rapport. Lizzie Lee and Mike Forsyth coming on to gossip about Red Roulette, Dan Rosen and Jude Blanchett reflecting on She's Regime, and my series of shows with Adam Tews and Matt Klein all fit this mode. Going forward, I'm going to start asking future guests who they'd like to do shows with. I've also really enjoyed doing strings of five or so episodes on the same topic. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on my series on industrial policy, the space industry, and the R&D ecosystem. I was able to interview two think tank presidents, CNAPS's Richard Fontaine and CSET's Dewey Murdoch, and hope more are up for coming on this podcast. Doing groups of shows as opposed to one-offs lets me ask progressively smarter questions about topics while hopefully taking the audience on a learning journey with me. Ideas for future series include SOE governance and performance, critical emerging technologies beyond AI and chips, open source CCP research, Vietnam as a foil for China, and China's TV and movie industry. If you have feedback or ideas, please let me know. Going forward, I'd like to be more deliberate in picking topics. Over the past few years, I've found shows either by scrolling on Twitter, browsing academic press's websites, or searching China in recent books published on Amazon. That's fun, but leaves me a little constrained by the tyranny of the new. I'd like to find a way to record shows discussing books and articles not published in the past few months. I'll start asking past guests if they'd like to do book club type shows discussing their favorites. I'm curious, are there paying subscribers out there who'd be interested in sort of live Zoom book clubs that we then turn into podcasts? If you have other ideas for formats, let me know. In 2021, I had one show with a guest based in mainland China, Aija of Gusher FM. This is not for lack of trying. Most Chinese academics just don't respond. And this year, a handful of those who initially agreed to come on the show later backed out. Perhaps more public intellectual types, say a Liang Wendao, or people in industries that don't necessarily touch as directly on sensitive topics like musicians or curators might be more interesting to accept interviews. We'll see. It would also be great to do a few shows in Chinese. My language ability is just on the edge of being able to do this, and perhaps changing up the language of the show would make it more comfortable for mainland scholars and guests to shine up. I think I'd probably need a regular co-host with better speaking and listening ability than I have. So if you are that person, please reach out. On the topic of co-hosts more generally, I've quite liked having guests with me in the booth this past year. It breaks up the routine, gives, gives me a platform for young folks to engage with people they admire, and hopefully inspires more folks out there to start shows for themselves. If you have an idea for someone you're really excited to interview, consider submitting the idea in a form, in a Google form that I have in the podcast description. 
Now on to growth and revenue. So some of the top performing episodes of the past year have been Two's Incline on China's Economic History and Future, which got 13,000 downloads. What Evergrande Meets for China, also at 13,000. Bad China Take on Twitter, as well as China's Spies, Invisible China, and U.S.-China Ideological Competition. Just processing the fact that over 10,000 people download each episode of China Talk is a real trip. But unfortunately, listenership for China Talk has been largely flat through most of 2021. Unlike tweets or YouTube videos, podcasts don't really go viral. People don't find new podcasts via scrolling on an algorithmic feed. They go out and actively search for new channels to subscribe to. This leads to a very stable listenership episode to episode, but strong shows don't bring in many new listeners. Take, for instance, the fact that my that some, you know, pretty serviceable YouTube Evergrande content got 20 times the download as, in my opinion, my fantastic interview with Logan Wright. I had a handful of conversations with YouTubers about their process and what makes a channel work, but it became clear that investing time to make shows that fit the YouTube mold doesn't line up with the vision I have for China Talk. I want to produce content that approaches the highest level of analysis and thinking on China-related issues with energy and enthusiasm. Successful education-related YouTubers told me that they spend upwards of two times the amount editing video as they do research and writing, which sounds like a lot of time. But if you're reading this, have some experience, and would like to work with me on producing YouTube-specific content, please get in touch. Aside from reaching a smaller audience, a 10-minute YouTube video with 100,000 views could net me over a grand. However, dynamic insertion at the beginning and end of each China Talk episode currently brings less than $100 a show. Further, at 10,000 downloads per show, China Talk doesn't really hit the radar for mass market podcast advertisers like Squarespace or MeUndies. Even the more niche China-adjacent potential advertisers like language programs or specialty foods take a ton of time to pitch, onboard, and chase around for payment to really make it worth my while. Thankfully, a number of you have chosen to support me directly via Substack or Patreon. Your donations have helped me bring on a fantastic part-time editor, Kaylin Quinn, pay contributors at least $100 a column, keep up a pace of five podcasts and three to four newsletters a month, and dream up bigger ambitions for this platform. If you have the means, please consider supporting the show. $7 a month will give you access to an ad-free podcast feed and $150 a year, a first edition China Talk mug, not to mention my boundless gratitude and buckets of good karma. And please tell three friends about this show and the newsletter. Actually, don't tell them the next time you see them, take their phone, hit subscribe, download the three shows, and download the three shows you think you think they'd like the best. If you're looking for favorites to send them, I made a playlist on Spotify of my top 10 shows. One week from now, I expect to see three times growth. So it has come to my attention that a lot of you out there don't know I also write a newsletter. The following is a summary of what I've been up to on the newsletter and my plans for the future. You can find it at chinatalk.substack.com. My deepest writing this year touched on the chip industry by focusing on the political economy questions and geopolitical tensions that that increasingly drive developments in the sector. I think I've been able to bring a fresh perspective to some debates. The following contains a lot of links. Uh, If you would like to click any of those links, uh, feel free to open the uh, link to this written document in the show notes. Earlier this year, I I published a three-part Labs Over Fab series alongside Chris Miller and Danny Crichton exploring research funding, talent, and the role of open source in rebuilding the U.S. chip ecosystem. I also authored a piece with Terry Daly about how Beijing could hit back on chips and wrote for Rhodium on how China's chip industry is falling faster, on how China's chip industry is running faster but still falling behind. 
Expect more in this vein. I'm currently working with the Day One Project and Hassan Khan, who wrote a fascinating PhD thesis on how research institutions failed to rise to the challenge of a post-Moore's Law paradigm. We explore how we explore how the U.S. should support the next generation of semiconductor research, and we'll have a policy paper coming out in a few weeks. This year, the newsletter also featured some strong translations, including on CCP rap comp propaganda, DD's troubles, and how elite CCP decisions really get made. But my favorite one was a 36KR piece exploring China's chip Theranos, HSMC. The story read like a Hollywood script, an audacious and motley crew of scammers with high school educations, but rumored party backing, convinced a district government hungry for chip making glory to invest billions of RMB into their factory. A string of unbelievable victories followed. Chang Shangyi, a venerable chip-making veteran who led TSMC's R&D team, joined the company. Under his guidance, HSMC acquired a coveted ASML lithography machine. Success seemed inevitable until everything came crashing down. I've also been proud to run some fantastic guest columns this year uh, on how the Chinese government uses Facebook, about Chinese economists debating themselves about what industrial policy makes sense, China's relationship to Myanmar, and my personal favorite, from a college sophomore, no less, a profile of Chinese blogger Chairman Rabbit, China's, quote, cosmopolitan patriot. I'm always looking for interesting pitches and I'm happy to pay. I've been personally writing less on China Talk. I hope for that to change in 2022, starting with small, brief takes on news items, books I read, and papers I come across. But as a longer-term goal, through the Emergent Ventures Fellowship, I've met a number of folks who've written books piece by piece on Substack. This framing makes a book seem a little less scary. The idea I'm most excited about right now is exploring the evolution of PRC technology policy since reform and opening. I hope to approach the topic in a, rate, in a manner somewhat similar to Roosh Dosi's The Long Game, which wove together close readings of policy pronouncements, leaked documents, and memoirs to paint a picture of China's grand strategic aim. Hopefully, the open source CCP project provides the methodological tool set for such an undertaking. All right, and now my interview with the browser. In this interview, in this interview, I mentioned my favorite historian of China, Jonathan Spence, who passed away last week. I'd like to share reflections from all of you about personal recollections or what his books meant to you. If you're interested in contributing, please send an email with a one to five minute voice memo in the next two weeks to jorschneider at gmail.com. Instructions on how to do so in the podcast description. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the browser interviews. Today, I'm with Jordan Schneider who's a China technology analyst at the Rhodium Group, as well as the host of the China Talk podcast and newsletter. Welcome to the browser. Thanks so much for having me. I've been a subscriber for like seven years. You guys make me an interesting and intelligent individual. Without the browser, I would be much more basic. So thank you so much for doing all that you guys do. I didn't pay him to say this, so thank you, Jordan. <laughs> That's awesome. So... As a friend of the browser and an interesting individual yourself, I thought I'd just ask you for a bunch of recommendations. If you're ready, we'll just dive right in. Let's do it. Jordan, what would you recommend if someone wanted to know more about your area of expertise? So I guess like the broadest level, what I do is China analysis. Um, and I think when trying to understand contemporary China. You can't just start in the 21st century. You have to go back deep in history, but in particular, you have to start with Mao. The best intro that I've come across for Mao's China, how he impacted the PRC, what legacies he left on the structure of governance, which the contemporary CCP is still grappling today, is this book by Andrew Calder called China Under Mao. 
It's digestible. Many uh, Mao tombs are not. And it gives you a fantastic overview going from the founding of the country through the Halcyon initial first few years into the Great Leap Forward and Calder's treatment of the Cultural Revolution, a topic that he spent most of his life devoted to researching, is really second to none. So the first book I would pick up to try to understand contemporary China would be China Under Mao. Cool. Thanks. Did read that book at school. I forgot who. It's got like a yellow cover with his face on it. Oh, yes. Okay. So Mao Zedong, A Life by uh, Jonathan Spence, who is probably my favorite Western historian of China. This is also in, in terms of sort of like pamphlet form. It's only maybe 70 pages, but does a very fantastic overview. That book was now written a few decades ago. I also think for anyone interested in getting a bit more of a longer perspective, diving into some of Jonathan Spence's work on China is fantastic. His overview of uh, the past 400 years of Chinese history called The Search for Modern China is the book that got me hooked on this stuff in general. He also has these just gems of writing, diving in particular about a handful of Ming and Qing dynasty work God's Chinese son about the Taiping Tianguo, the heavenly kingdom, which was this revolt where the leader of it literally thought he was Jesus, kicked off a civil war where 50 million people died. It was an incredible blend of theological analysis, psychological analysis, sociological analysis, all wrapped up in some of the best English language writing from a stylistic perspective you'll ever encounter on China. The, the Chan's Great Continent, the question of who, the memory palace of Matteo Ricci, all are true modern classics if folks are, are willing to go before the 20th century and explore somewhat deeper cuts on English language scholarship around China. That's fantastic. Actually, I was just going to ask you what got you into China. You mentioned just now this book was sort of like the starting point, but can you go a little bit deeper into how you got so fascinated with China? Sure. I mean, I was a little late to the game. Kids these days are now starting Chinese in middle school and high school. I actually uh, went through university without ever taking a, um, a Chinese language class. I spent my first few years after college as a policy and later a macroeconomic analyst. Those two jobs, I think, gave me like a sense of how important China was. And I felt very silly, like writing things that were about like US-China relationships without knowing anything about China. I had a pretty dramatic health challenge over 2016. I had a very serious concussion, which had me on medical leave for a year. After that experience, once I um, was healthy again, I was very motivated to explore our lovely planet. And I figured probably the sort of most adventurous thing I could do would be to move to China. Luckily, I was accepted into a master's program at Peking University and moved to Beijing in 2017. I guess that's kind of how it all kicked off. A combination of like vaguely interested in a big change, open to trying a hard language and free grad school all added up to a bit of a sidestep in my mid-20s, which I'm very thankful I had the opportunity to do. Wow, that's crazy. Thank you for sharing that. I can't believe after sustaining such a serious injury, you had the motivation to then go and study Mandarin. Well, I mean, you go through something like that and it's like, on the one hand, I don't go snowboarding anymore. 
I'm not suiting up to play a hockey goalie anytime soon. But there are other things you just care a little less about, like taking career sidesteps or not sweating the small things. I'm very thankful that this brain injury was never something which was life-threatening. A lot of people you see go through cancer treatment or something have the same sort of reaction where their sort of outlook on life changed. And I think um, I had a, a not entirely dissimilar response once I was over the kind of mostly over the chronic pain stuff brain injuries tend to come with that made a decision like this much more straightforward than it would have been otherwise. Yeah. How did you learn Chinese? So I learned Chinese in the most fun way you can possibly learn Chinese, which is by hanging out on a university campus and pretending you're a Chinese national with really crappy Mandarin. So I very conscientiously joined a lot of clubs and activities where I knew I would be like the only foreigner or one of the few foreigners, just in order to force myself to be in environments where there wasn't like a critical mass of English language speakers that like people would switch to English. So, you know, joining stuff like the badminton team and the Chinese painting club. I was in a the musical group having never sang before, but they needed someone who could rap because we put on Hamilton. All of those experiences, I think, just like added up to immersion done the right way, which is hard to execute, especially when starting from a relatively low base. It is kind of painful and awkward and you have to be comfortable that you're only going to understand 40 percent of what's going on around you. But slowly but surely, that percentage started to creep up. Um, and I think there's a real virtuous cycle you get where once you are able to speak up every once in a while, you get even more excited to to put yourself in those sorts of uh, in those sorts of like stretch language situations. Um, you know, I don't think Chinese is impossible to learn outside of an immersion environment. There are definitely ways to build up that skill through watching television, through listening to podcasts, through listening to Chinese music. But it really does help when you really have no choice if you want to eat or do laundry or, you know, buy a package on the Internet to be confronted with Chinese languages and characters on a daily basis. Yeah, for sure. Wait, so did you put on Hamilton at Peking University? Indeed did. Uh, I think it was the first production on the mainland. There might have been like one really precocious high school that like got to it a month before us, but we don't need to talk about them. It was a fantastic experience. You know, it's a very small community of young Chinese people who like Western musicals. So it was our university, but there were like kids from all around Beijing who knew that a show was happening and we needed 50 people and like, okay, we get like three set designers from like Renda. Two of our actresses were from Tsinghua or whatever. They loved it. It took a year to put on. We had rehearsals every weekend and we were able to put together like a shockingly high level professional show so definitely a highlight of my time there so next question jordan what would you recommend if someone wanted to come across as being smart in a conversation well i want to push back on the premise a little bit i don't think coming across smart in a conversation should really be a goal um, I mean, I, I think people should like instead optimize towards knowledge and understanding as opposed to like impressing folks at cocktail parties. But maybe this is just like my married self who's like given up speaking. Um, that said, 
you know, I like to think of my newsletter as something like a browser for China, but I'll pitch a few more other newsletters, which I think do a really good job of keeping focus on being relatively up to date and incorporating Chinese language sources, which also happens surprisingly little in English language coverage of China. The Interconnected blog by Kevin Shu, a friend of mine who actually was my boss as an intern in an entirely different context 10 years ago. We've reconnected over China tech analysis, which is fantastic. Every week he picks like six or seven articles. It's actually a bi-language newsletter, so he translates um, each edition. If folks are looking for like bilingual content to practice on, is fantastic. Another newsletter, Slow Chinese, looks at contemporary developments from a linguistic context. So dives into like kind of trending neologisms and trending Chinese words and also whatever random idioms that she happens to be using that week uh, does it in a very humorous context, both mixing internet stuff and CCP high political analysis into uh, a nice little bite-sized newsletter, which I think is interesting not only to Mandarin speakers or like folks studying Mandarin, but also just people who appreciate how crazy language can be. Even without a Chinese background, you, you'd you be able to have some fun with it. It's called newsletter.slowchinese.net. Nice. I think I'm going to sign up to that one. I sort of miss browsing through Chinese Weibo and just picking up fun things. Um, so next question then, what is the one thing you'd recommend from all of your Amazon slash other online purchases over the last year and a half during the pandemic, assuming you've been stuck at home? I think the one thing I've always cooked a lot, but I've not quite appreciated the magic of like special ingredients as I did before. I think just like having basic recipes that you make, like you bake a salmon or like you make a pasta or you roast a chicken or whatever. Um, and then if you have a few ingredients, which you just like put on top of it and all of a sudden it's a different thing or it's like a special flavor, as opposed to cooking something more elaborate, which is going to take more time and effort. That's been a real revelation for me. So I have a few of those sort of special ingredients, which I've incorporated over the past year and a half of pandemic cooking, which have been a great return, like the relative time investment to tastiness ratio is very Hi, I think I said that backwards, but you get the point. So fried onions, uh, togarashi in various shapes and flavors. This is like Japanese rice spice under $10. I have a yuzu one and like a sesame-y one. Both are great. Um, Fly by Jing's Jong dumpling sauce. Also a real favorite on mine. I just had it on some garlic butter noodles this morning, which made me feel like a little bit less of a child for eating garlic butter noodles. All three of those and just whenever you're in a supermarket taking a flyer on that $10 condiment because it just may very well change your life and make kind of boring home-cooked lunch turn into something worthy of the limited meals we have left to eat on this planet. Uh, yeah, small internet purchases are one of my favorite, one of life's uh, great joys. What would you recommend as the best cure to an existential crisis? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would like recommend moving to China as like a cure to an existential crisis. The one thing I will say is like 
to challenge your premise again, I think some existential prices shouldn't be like cured with like reality TV or something, but occasionally have to be confronted somewhat head on. That said, over the past few years, I've taken up Chinese landscape painting. If you're someone who's like into drawing, but doesn't really like watercolor or, or thinks like acrylic or oil paint is just too involved. Um, the really nice thing about landscape painting is that it's basically one color. So you only have one ink. It's like super fast to set up. You can finish a painting in a few hours. Um, it's very forgiving in that you can't erase, but also like you can turn mistakes into just like another rock or another tree. Um, so it is very Zen in that sense. You kind of let your mistakes lead you into your next thing on your canvas. It's super cheap. And you can kind of do it while doing other things. So I like listening to a book at the same time. It's a great way to start off a weekend. Um, there are a handful of YouTube video introductions in English if folks aren't sure where to start. But, you know, you can be up and painting for like $30. And it's a very sort of Zen habit. Nice. And are you painting on an actual scroll? Or are you using like watercolor paper? I've I've done a few scrolls, but like the scrolls get really stressful because I know it's like six dollars. Like if I screw it up, I'll have to buy another one. Uh yeah, I have not done a scroll and like given it to someone like I'm some Ming dynasty aristocrat making friends and drinking booze on a river or something. But maybe I'll get there. I just think I need friends who can like give me one back, right? Because that's how you build the the bond. So yeah, if anyone out there watching this wants to exchange scrolls with me, I'll be happy to spend the $6 and, and purchase one. And you're going to have to get one of those stamps. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stamps are necessary, too. Otherwise, my name will not live in them. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, when the emperor picks it up, he'll never know who um, that it was. It was it was Jordan Schneider who uh, <laughs> was the uh, original creator. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, cool. And we're down to our last question in the form of three mini questions. Can you recommend uh, one book, one hobby, and a daily habit that you think people should pick up or that you've ha- found useful? You know what? I have an audiobook suggestion. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal's reading of Anna Karenina. Unbelievable. I read this book when I was 17 in high school and sort of appreciated it. I thought I was this angsty Levin character. Um uh, right now, my sister is actually reading my hard copy and she's like sending me photos of like the notes where I say like, that's me, which is incredibly embarrassing. But uh, I will say just like Maggie Gyllenhaal and the translation she's reading is like contemporary and fun and approachable and also just incredibly deep. And I remember my parents telling me this when I was in high school and reading these books that you will appreciate them much more when you're a little older and you've seen more of life and more of people. And I feel like that's absolutely the case and like such a joy to come back to great works of literature as a like a middle age. Well, I guess as a, a somewhat approaching middle age. So if, if someone's looking to take a pause and read read an 800 page Russian novel or uh, just wants to listen to it while, while they're painting Chinese landscape paintings, a uh, fantastic pairing. Okay, now we have one hobby and one daily habit. I feel like we've talked about my hobby. So I've been playing a lot of basketball, I guess, my whole life, but I've never tried to get better at it. Um, thanks to YouTube and the global pandemic, I've improved like 
kind of dramatically in a way that I didn't think was possible. Um, there are these YouTube tutorials of these coaches who teach you how to do the moves of specific NBA players. And they're like, oh, play like Devin Booker. Here's how you do his dribbling. And here's how you change his shot to look like him. Like Giannis, do you want to learn like a Euro step eight different ways? It's both been like a fantastic way to work out improved me as a basketball player but probably most importantly for the long run like made me appreciate the degree of difficulty that these folks are able to execute with the sort of almost balletic aspect of the sport which i don't think i was able to process just playing pickup and like watching the nba but actually trying to sort of do the things that these incredible athletes do um, in a sort of structured way where you like do the easiest version and then a somewhat harder version was a really fantastic experience over the past uh, year and a half and highly encourage it for anyone who's, you know, fallen off the bandwagon or just looking for a new workout routine, I guess. Daily habit. So, oh, I, I got one for you. So I, I have this podcast, right? And I, I try to find new authors and, and, and interview them on my show. Um, it is like shockingly difficult to collect all of the academic presses and see where all of the, the new books are coming out because there's not like a great centralized place to do that if you want to scan all of the somewhat academic uh, book releases. Until I realized you can search on Amazon by upcoming 90 days. Uh, so if, if you are in a sort of specialty field or have some weird specialty interest, um, I just search like China or like Japan or South Korea or technology or China technology and limit it by the sort of time window. I found that to be a great way of saving me the hassle of like going to Princeton University Press and Oxford University Press and navigating their incredibly ugly websites. So yeah, shout out to Amazon's new releases search engine if you're trying to see what kind of under the radar books are out there in your uh, area of interest. Cool. Thank you for that great tip. Um, and thank you for speaking with me today. It was really fun. Absolutely. Likewise. Anyway,没能再付出我走的路，即便让我再多久为数，没见过世面，别想说的住，太多被扬起的泡沫，飘在空中却被硬碰就破，空白的纸张被泼墨，怎么经得住彩色的诱惑？当一切都开始变味，
没玩过乐高，但我已经可以用红色的软绵绵打积木。没学过声乐，但音乐的天赋让所有的同行们都嫉妒。没搬到北京，但太多的遥远买了就像金主的关系户。没成为明星，但越来越多的明星出现在我的通讯录